Welcome, everybody, to episode three of the University Application Guide podcast with your host, Dr. Ryan Eller. Uh, today's podcast episode is an important one. It's really budgeting and thinking about how to go through college and get out on the other side with no debt, but still a degree in hand. Uh, so I hope today's episode is helpful to you, and hopefully you can do what I did and graduate college with no debt and start oh, life. I'm uh, recording a video and a podcast today focusing on uh, how to graduate college with zero debt. Um, just kind of thinking over topics that I think might be useful to students. I was thinking back to my own experience as a college student and how I was very fortunate through all three of my degree programs, my bachelor's, my master's, and my doctorate degree, uh, I was able to graduate with no debt during any of those programs and actually be able to save up some money to be able to buy a home after the completion of my master's degree. So I wanted to walk you through kind of what I did. Uh, maybe some of these tips can be helpful. I'm sure there might be other tips that people may have, uh, but without further ado, I'll just jump right into it. So first and foremost, just introducing kind of who I am. Uh, I'm Dr. Ryan Eller, uh, hold a doctorate degree in education from Fresno State. Uh, and personally, this is these videos and podcasts and also the blog that I've been working on. It's just a, a little side project I've been doing, trying to provide free information uh, for students to be able to apply to college, to succeed while they're in college, and ultimately uh, try to plan as efficiently as possible for what they're going to do after they graduate. Uh, so I operate a free website called universityapplicationguide.com where I just provide tips for really kind of students at any level. And it's, it's a growing website right now. It's a little new, uh, but it's growing, and I think it will have useful tips for people as I continue to develop it a little bit further. So jumping right into it, the first number one topic is how I graduated. Um, my undergraduate was zero debt. Um, so kind of first and foremost, I think to, to preface this, I need to be, I think, somewhat honest here in that I was fortunate that I had parents who uh, could support me financially at some level. Um, there was a lot of talk between me and my father when I was younger, when I was you know, roughly 16, 17 years old, that likely we would have to take out student loans just based on our financial situation. We weren't a poor family, we were definitely middle class, but you know, every family has expenses and you can only save so much for college, right? So I was fortunate that my sister at the time wasn't really going to school and so I was the only kind of adult child who um, was planning to attend college at that moment. So they could help me out for my first semester, but then starting in future semesters, it was going to have to be kind of on me. Uh, so I really was trying to think basically from day one, how can I keep my expenses to the bare minimum and get through this uh, without this costing me an arm and a leg? So the number one thing that I did, and this was actually more by chance than by choice, was um, attending an inexpensive school. I attended Cal State Monterey Bay. It's a CSU, obviously here in the California uh, State University system. And when I was attending school at the time, tuition was $1,500 a semester. So I started my undergraduate in 2008. And I graduated in 2012. But you know, as you can tell by the tuition dollar amount, and you know, I won't lie, I'll show it to you right now. Actually, you know, if you look, it's a little hard to see here, but if you look. In my 2008 fall, let me pull up the little um, annotation thing here to spotlight it. But right, oh gosh. So you know, the thing is they, they put these painted plans all over the place, it's really hard to see. Um, my tuition is somewhere around here, oh goodness. Well, I guess I'm not gonna be able to find it. But you can see where some of the costs kind of were, right? So in housing, in meal plan for us was about, Oh, roughly about $4,000, and tuition was about, 
Mm, let's see here. Tuition payments were right here. So they were usually right around $1,500 to $1,900. It just kind of depended where you were at. Now, my account here is a, a huge mess because I started working um, at the university. So I have some, some insight here into what these accounts look like. But if you basically, if you add that all up, roughly a semester here would cost about $5,000, which probably sounds relatively cheap to most people. Um, but personally, you know, I, I'll just be honest, that was not necessarily something my family could afford over the long term. And so I had to think about how I could fund that. So yes, while my school was inexpensive, I still had to think of other ways to fund it. And so what I was fortunate, it was when I started my time at Cal State Monterey Bay, I met my now wife who was a resident advisor and she, I had no idea what a resident advisor was before college, but you know, through getting to know her and ultimately dating her, um, you know, she recommended that you should look into being a resident advisor. It takes care of your room and your board. And so if you, you know, think back to the customer account there, I was showing you of my customer account, but you know, all of my fees there, you know, roughly a, a semester was 5,000 bucks for us. And so if I could cover, you know, two thirds of, our costs, my family's costs for me to go to college, my dad said, yeah, it wouldn't even be a problem to fund your tuition for us because uh, it would really take that, that bigger cost out of play, which was my food and my, my housing on campus. So by being a resident advisor, I was able to cover those costs. And you know, if you're not familiar with what a resident advisor is, it's essentially a student mentor who oversees a floor within a dormitory or res hall or some form of student housing. And within that whole kind of responsibility, you're basically tasked with kind of keeping your floor from getting out of control, making sure that kind of there's not too much crazy partying going on and that people are, you know, ultimately able to study and perform as a student on the floor. And, you know, resident advisors have kind of, I'll be honest, they have kind of mixed uh, reputations, if you will, in the college going world. But, you know, I, I had no problem being both a student and a resident advisor and, and being friendly with people on my floor. It's how you maintain yourself, right? So if people, it's like with any position of power, if you start to, you know, kind of abuse that power, people dislike you. But I tried to always be very, you know, fair and, and kind to my, my residents. And I think that made me a, a decent resident advisor. And I continued, I started actually, I applied to be a resident advisor for my second semester of my freshman year. Uh, which is usually quite rare. Most resident advisors will start sometime in their second or third year of, um, of whatever college they're attending. Whereas I was fortunate, I was able to start in my second semester. And so I was able to really cut almost all of my living costs from my undergraduate experience from basically semester two onwards. I never spent another cent on room and board, which was huge for me and my family. The other big thing, and it, it's an obvious thing, but just getting some type of job on campus as a student assistant, you know, was I making a lot of money doing that? No, I was making minimum wage, which at the time I think was like, you know, eight or eight fifty an hour uh, here in California, whereas I'm sure now you'd probably make a little bit more money. But, you know, it was something I'd work 10 hours a week. I think I started off with and then I started adding more. And, you know, for me, it was easy. I had a bit of an in being a resident advisor. We could work for our student housing office, kind of manning the phones, you know, giving packages to people, basic kind of front desk labor type stuff. And so I did that for a little while and then ultimately ended up working for um, my undergraduate majors office as kind of like the receptionist person, front desk type guy. And so I did that as well to, to get kind of 20 hours. But what I ended up doing, and this is a little bit 
skill specific, I suppose, but you know, I had been somebody who played basketball most of his life <laughs> by no means my God's gift to basketball, but you know, I had some skill set in it. And so I started coaching local rec leagues and refing basketball games in the local area. And similarly, I wasn't making a ton of money. I mean, it was probably nine to $10 an hour, but it was something I was doing 20 hours a week. You know, I was coaching 10 hours a week. I was refing another 10 hours for, you know, the, the rec league that I was coaching in. So I was doing that kind of side by side and it, it helped me uh, to, to make a little bit extra money. I cut down my student assisting hours, but I was able to add this in. And so really by the time I was getting close to graduating from college, I then got lucky and I looked at local school districts. So I was thinking about maybe after I completed my undergraduate, I would become a, you know, substitute teacher or something like that for some additional money. But I saw a coaching opportunity at a local high school and that paid a lot more than what I was getting paid in that local rec league. And so I was able to turn that time that I'd spent in the rec league coaching and refing into a pretty decent coaching job, um, which paid a, a nice little salary. It wasn't anything crazy, but I think it was like, you know, $5,000 or so for the season. And, you know, for a 12 week season, I was able to make a, a nice little chunk of money uh, versus having to work an hourly job. And so I was able to kind of drop my other commitments and really just focus in on that coaching aspect, which was, you know, to me, it made working a side job fun. Because in a lot of ways, not that being a resident advisor wasn't fun. You know, most of my best friends, even now after college, are, are former coworkers who are resident advisors. But the big thing for me was that it allowed me to, to just get to, you know, do something that I really, really liked. And that would be my big thing for you is if you're going to work during college, it shouldn't always be about money because very likely whatever side job you're doing isn't going to be enough to cover all the bills but at least it can be something that you can enjoy and it can kind of take your mind off of school, but also kind of help a little bit, take a little bit of the pressure off your finances and things of that nature. Okay. So my big thing though, also it's not just the, the job and the working and those types of things that are helpful. The simplest thing you can do is track your purchases. You know, I had buddies who were obviously also resident advisors who were student assistants some were valets and were making great money valeting down at the, the local kind of tourist attractions down in the Monterey area. And the biggest thing was, is I always had a little bit more money in my pocket because I was really, really good about tracking what I was doing with my money. I had my little online checking account. I would check it. I would make sure everything was kind of going smoothly and I would never spend more than 50% of what I earned for any given check. And so that way I was able to actually save up a little bit of money by the time I was graduating. But, you know, the big thing I just did was I didn't go out to eat all the time. You know, I really use, because a big thing you'll see with a lot of resident advisors is, and this is true actually for a lot of students in general, is, you know, either mom and dad are helping you with the meal plan or you're taking out your loan to get your meal plan or your resident advisor and your meal plan's paid for, but then you never eat on campus. You know, I had friends who were either working on campus or were not working on campus who just any student, right? And they would not eat on campus. And I understand it, you know, not every campus has the best dining experience out there. And, you know, I don't want <laughs> to hate on our college by any means, but, you know, our cafeteria wasn't God's gift of food, but it, it worked, you know, it kept me fed. You could eat a lot there because it was all you could eat, you know, so you could keep yourself well fed and, and be relatively happy. And there were always options, even if maybe the dish for the day wasn't all that great. There was always, you know, we had like a little taqueria in the cafeteria. So you could always get, you know, Mexican food or 
you could get a pre-made, you could make a, have a sandwich built for you, kind of like a Subway style type thing. Um, or there was always a salad bar. So there was always an option that you could take care of yourself there and be all right. And that was the big thing is, you know, I had buddies who would basically, the minute they got a check, that check would go all towards um, carryout type food, not even going to the grocery store and buying like decent food, but just, you know, fast food, restaurants or clothes or video, you know how it goes, you know, clothes, video games, things that just really aren't that necessary. And so, you know, the big thing is you can have a little bit of fun. You should have a little bit of fun, but if you're smart about it, you can actually walk away with some money depending always it goes back to kind of your initial choice of school. Right. And so if you're going to a school and you don't have a, you know, a large aid package from that school and you're going to be spending money out of pocket for, you know, living expenses and tuition and books and all of that, you know, it really behooves you to think about, is it worth the trade-off? Is this school's name and recognition more beneficial than me going down to my local state school and getting a comparable degree? comparable degree for way less of a price. And that was, I think, one of the big things for me too. It's just because school was so inexpensive and I was, I like to believe relatively smart with my money. I was able to walk away with actually a, a little bit of a bank account, not huge by any means, but a little bit of money by the time that I graduated with my undergraduate degree. Now, I was, I, as I've alluded to, I, I also have a master's and a doctorate degree, so I'll share some tips there. But, um, you know, by all means, if you've if you're an undergraduate, you kind of stop here, I suppose. But, you know, in the next step of my development, I continued actually at the same school for my math, for my master's degree. I stayed at Cal State Monterey Bay. I uh, did a master's degree kind of focused in the ed tech field. And so by staying at that inexpensive school, even if I wouldn't have had, and you'll see here I'm kind of my second bullet, I was lucky I had a tuition waiver for that particular program. And so... I was funded up to a certain amount of units, up to about eight units were covered by this tuition waiver program. But in this master's program, I wanted to really like take every single class. And so that meant I'd have to go over that eight unit count. So I did spend some money out of pocket, but I think really start to finish, I spent maybe, maybe four or $5,000 total for my master's program, including books, living costs, all of that, because I continued to RA on campus. And, and at least at my campus, and this would be another kind of reason I would push people to RA if they, you know, if they absolutely can't be a resident advisor, is there's, there were different living options. So when I was an undergraduate, I lived in um, first kind of just the standard dormitories. You know, if anybody knows about Cal State Monterey Bay, part of our dorm options were basically recommissioned military barracks. So they weren't illustrious by any means, but they, the positive is that they were relatively big and every room had a bathroom. So that was a big selling point to our dormitories. But then we had newer buildings that had been built that had little kitchenettes and then another newer building that had a full kitchen, you know, with an oven and all of that. And so as I continued my RA in career, I was able to get those more coveted um, dormitory situations where I was able to get the, you know, rooms with a little kitchenette and I was ultimately able to get a room with a full kitchen and then we also have a, a style of housing here where it's family style housing. So you you would live in a quadplex and you'd be able to basically have like a two room little house, you know, uh, which was awesome. You had your own little garage and stuff like that. And so my final year of graduate studies, I moved out there. So if you have a situation like that where, you know, RAing, there's kind of different styles of housing. As you mature, you can probably 
and I don't mean that mature as in like just as you kind of mature through college in terms of you kind of matriculate through college, you can kind of get these better and better housing options if your school has those. So anyways, long story short, that's another reason to kind of think about RAing, if you will. I continued to coach basketball actually a little bit after my master's uh, experience, but because I knew I wanted to get an education, I've talked about this in a prior video and in, in prior podcast episodes for my podcast listeners, because I knew I wanted to go into higher ed, I, I, this is when I really started to think about past just what are, what am I doing just to kind of get the bare minimum cost covered and also just have a little bit of spending money. And so I wanted to actually start getting some work experience that was relevant to my field, but could also still, you know, be worth doing. And so I, started advertising on Craigslist to be a resume reviewer, to um, review essays, to, you know, uh, do tutoring, general stuff like that. And I got some feedback and I actually got some people who wanted to do that. So I started off doing that for a few months and then, you know, just kind of by chance ran into um, these places that, not these places, but these institutions that want people to teach English online. Um, I've also talked about this in a previous video, but that I was thinking about some point by the time I was going to graduate about potentially going over and teaching in China or Korea or Japan, somewhere in Asia or potentially Europe um, after graduating to kind of start my career. Because uh, at that point, I kind of wanted to be, you know, some type of either teacher or university professor. And I just felt like I didn't really have any teaching experience and I didn't have a, like a big research background. So I, I wanted to find some type of way to get that experience. Well, by chance, just on one of these forums that was focused on teaching English as a second language, I saw people recommend teaching online. And so I think if you're somebody who's a people person or you just enjoy working with others, this could be a great opportunity for you. And so you know, I'll share a couple of the companies that I worked for. I worked for iTalkI, which is basically, it would be similar to advertising yourself on Craigslist. You make a little profile, you tell people, you know, what language you can teach them, you set your own price, uh, and then you can sell your lessons, basically, uh, and, and have people meet you either through Skype or nowadays probably people use Zoom too, but you know, however you meet them doesn't really matter. You can just go ahead and meet with them. And so I set my fees really low, but built up a clientele and ultimately used that to build up a resume to apply to another uh, online teaching site that was a little more like almost like an online school called Tutor ABC. And they had a set salary that you would make for each lesson. So a set more like a set wage for each class. And then you would get a bonus if you taught well. And so, you know, kind of here I was little, you know, 23 year old Ryan, in a, but they also had a dress code, which I think is kind of funny now looking back on it because you could just see basically my shirt and a tie uh, and my face, of course. But um, little 23 year old Ryan was, you know, teaching like business executives English or, um, so, you know, the, the backgrounds range, but you had a lot of business executives who were taking classes on lunch because their tutor ABC was based out of Taiwan. And so there was a lot of these businesses paying their employees to study English so that they could work better with English clientele that they might have, English speaking clientele. Um, really interesting experience. I did both of those for about a, roughly five to six months. But during that time of me working with those people, what I was able to turn that into is actual local tutoring job at a tutoring center. And so I was able to just build up a resume. And even though I only had a few months of tutoring experience by the time I applied to that tutoring center, 
I had a really tangible experience uh, that I could fall back on. And, you know, both of those sites, for example, had a rating system. So I was able to share, you know, like, you know, I was a five out of five rated teacher on iTalkI and I was, you know, a 9.3 out of 10 rated teacher on Tutor ABC, you know, things like that on my resume and actually use it to turn it into a job. I hate to say in the real world, but a job that was actually local and based here in the United States. So I ended up doing those things all the way through graduation. Once again, helped me to build up a little bit extra money. Uh, and by the time I actually graduated with my master's degree, my wife and I had saved up enough money and were able to keep our expenses so low that we were able to buy a condo while both of us were in our mid-20s so that when I graduated, we could just move straight into that versus having to move into an apartment or anything like that. And we were lucky also the market at that time was a little bit cheaper, but that's neither here nor there for this particular video. So, um, gosh, my slides got a little weird there, but um, another thing that I did, and this is now for the doctoral level, is you know, once I got into the doc, once I completed my master's degree, you know, I alluded that I kind of bought a condo and in both my wife and I started our careers. And what I did was I worked for a few years before I got into my doctoral program. And that allowed me to save up a little bit of money because I wasn't sure what it was going to cost, you know. But the big thing is that I waited and I was patient and I knew I wanted to, as I alluded to before, I wanted to work in higher ed. So I waited until I could get a job at my alma mater and I got a job there, got into the right department that would give you a tuition waiver for whatever education you wanted to go get. So as long as I stayed within the CSU system, I was able to get a pretty substantial waiver. It didn't pay for all of my degree, but it paid for most of my doctorate degree. And so the rest of the money I was able to basically cover by kind of in my bottom point there by teaching uh, a little bit for some additional by teaching there for a little bit of additional money, I was able to cover the rest of my expenses for my doctoral program. I continued to do some consulting work in the evening using some expertise that I had gained uh, to my various jobs. And, you know, by having a combination of a, another waiver, this time an, an employee waiver for my doctoral program, I was able to cover all of my expenses and, you know, also as before, continue to save up more and more money um, you know, I know a lot of people would probably be, this is a, a slide that, you know, and for those of you who are on the podcast and listening, can't see the slide. There's a big caveat here that obviously most doctoral students, I shouldn't say most, but most doctoral programs that you would actually want to attend, you wouldn't want to pay for. Now that is excluding any professional doctorate, right? An MD, a JD, probably even some DBA programs, doctors of business administration, you know, pharmacy, doctor of pharmacy, you know, those types of things or professional based degrees, you're, you're going to have to usually pay some form of tuition. You're not going to get um, some type of like teaching or research stipend. And this is also true for a lot of um, ed D programs. And I have a, a doctorate of education or an ed D uh, and it's a, it's a professional degree program as well. So, you know, they're shorter in nature. They're a little bit less research oriented. They're more practically focused to your work field naturally mine being higher education. Um, but the point being in that is that, yes, there's also the opportunity for a lot of people to get their PhDs fully funded. If you're, especially in the STEM or the humanities type fields, a lot of people are going to get a full stipend <clears throat> that covers, you know, all of the tuition and living costs and usually also a little bit of pay on top of that. The thing that I think most PhD students would tell you though, is it's not, 
not very substantial in terms of the money you're getting on top of your living expenses. So for me, just in terms of like a cost benefit analysis, I was better off paying, you know, I think the eight or $9,000 I paid a year in tuition over three years and make 70, 80, $90,000 a year working than I would have been being in a PhD program where I would have, you know, had all my costs covered, but then had like a $20,000 stipend on top of it. So that was where I think in some circumstances, actually waiting, if, if a doctoral degree is your future goal, waiting and seeing, do I really want to be a, a, you know, a PhD where my primary outcome for most fields is to be a professor. Some STEM fields, you could certainly still go into industry, but for most fields, getting a PhD means you basically, you're kind of cutting off your career to being in higher ed and being in academia. Nothing wrong with that, but you're, you're just, you know, it, it gives you limited options. Whereas those of us, I think, who focus on a professional degree, the positive is that you can kind of tailor it to the outside world if you want to, and you can continue to work and build up work experience and things of that nature. So anywho, that was kind of the, the things that worked for me. You know, the major things as always, just to give you a quick recap, if you're up to doing it, be a resident advisor. I can't sell that more. Uh, I just don't know how much, how much more I could sell that. It just gave, took so much pressure off my family. I know for some schools, living costs are much more expensive than the CSUs. Probably this is very true for private schools. Being an RA, you just cover so much of your costs. So when in doubt, that's the number one thing I could always recommend for any college student is go be a resident advisor. To work some type of job part-time, there's a lot of reasons why that's important. I mean, if you saw in my presentation, I didn't talk about an internship. Some people will have fields where internships are really critical. I think any field, you'd be better off probably doing an internship. For me, since I thought I was you know, going to potentially work in student housing, I kind of felt like I was doing my internship year round by being a resident advisor. But you know, by and large, if you're not being in an internship of some kind, then you should be working part-time so that you can build up some resume experience, but also save up some money uh, or use that to kind of keep your, your overall loan payments down or just keep your overall debt down. Uh, and then the other big thing that you can do, and this is true in my case, is as you're continuing on, try to think about the potential unique skills that you have that can be offered to an employer. So for me, for example, I could use my basketball experience to turn into a basketball coach. And then I also turned in the fact that I'm, I like to think I'm a decent writer. So I turned that into tutoring experience that turned into teaching experience that ultimately helped me land some future jobs in my career and ultimately brought me back into higher education where I teach and work as a, as a student advisor, essentially. So um, one of the biggest things I can just recommend is just really thinking about those types of things, those little bit of job type items, and then also just being smart about your money, thinking about what you're spending your money on. I know it's easy to, to get a couple hundred bucks or you know, gosh, now days you guys are probably getting a little bit more from, you know, kind of these little side jobs. But let's say you can even get 400, 500 bucks every couple of weeks through work. It's so easy to go buy some new shoes, you know, or go buy a new video game or go eat some good food for once versus, you know, eating at your school cafeteria. But, you know, keeping that to maybe a once a month type thing versus every week or every few days will have a market impact on your bank account and it will really just take the pressure off of you in terms of funding your education. And then of course, lastly, the biggest thing is, gosh, you know, when you're picking a college, really think about what you're spending, you know, is it going to be worth 
because some there are great schools that probably to me if you go to harvard and, and let's say you don't get some amazing aid package when you go to harvard yeah the name on that degree and the network you're going to develop is probably worth every penny right but if you're going to go to a local private school and that private school is it just costs an astronomical amount of money is it really worth it just because the buildings are a little bit fancier or you know they maybe have your exact major versus a, a comparable major at your state school by and large you're better off going to the cheapest public institution you can go to whether that be a local jc or your your local state school but really i mean it, to me and this might sound silly being in higher education i think the biggest thing that i would look for if i was going to go do this all over again would just be how much does that school cost as long as it's regionally accredited some type of regional accreditation body has signed off that this school is a quality school then to you it shouldn't really matter past that to a certain extent right there are some schools that are, are worth that name recognition don't get me wrong but by and large you know unless it's one of these top 50 schools that everybody knows by name your local state school will serve you just fine so keep those types of things in mind and you know just as a, as a friendly reminder if you're interested in similar topics and similar discussions uh, that pop up kind of both here on my youtube channel and my podcast uh, feel free to check out my website that's where i host all of these types of things and, and do some longer form articles discussing all sorts of things related to um, really succeeding both before college during college and after college so take care everybody and i hope to hear from you soon